Just a note for listeners. This episode contains mention of violence. Caste systems exist all over the world, but India's is among the oldest and the most well-known, having been around for thousands of years. After India became independent from British colonial rule in 1947, the government actually outlawed discrimination based on caste. Caste-based violence has been reported. At least two mosques have been set on fire. Nearly 200 people have been injured. 200 people killed. But more than 70 years later, the caste system still very much exists in India. Today, the people at the bottom are known as Dalits. To India now, where there has been a spike in caste-based violence against Dalits, formerly known as untouchables and they continue to be targeted. You know, every 15 minutes a crime is committed against a Dalit. Every day, six Dalit women are raped. Living up to their notorious practice, Indian police beat the poor Dalit couple in front of their distraught children. At a time when atrocities on Dalits are making news across the nation, there's another... I'm Hint Hassan, and this is Strongman a show about power and control. Now, Hierarchy. This is Sajatha Gidler. When she talks about her identity, she chooses a word that many people in India no longer use to describe themselves. I use untouchable and uh, I see it as a matter of fact thing because if I go somewhere, if they touch me, they will cleanse themselves. So I am an untouchable and I would prefer to tell people what exactly it is. Let them be shocked, let them understand what it means. And yeah, a lot of uh, Dalits object to that. You'll hear Sajatha use both this word and the term Dalit throughout her story. But when Sajatha was growing up, she didn't identify with either of these words because for much of her childhood, she didn't really understand what caste she was from. Her parents had made a conscious decision to try to raise their children this way. Sajatha is from a small town on the southeast coast of India called Kakinada, in the state of Andhra Pradesh. Yes, Kakinada is uh, the east coast of India. Uh, it's Bay of Bengal is the sea that's close to us. Growing up in the 70s, her family lives in a neighbourhood on the outskirts of town. It's not much traffic there, it's like... Uh, everybody knew everybody else and, you know, people are, were very poor there. But even though their neighbourhood is poor, Sajatha's family is relatively comfortable. Her parents are both college lecturers, her mum teaches history and her dad English. They're also Christians, like many Dalit people, 
However, her family had converted earlier than most, which meant her grandparents had accessed education via missionary schools and not only were able to make education a priority for Sajatha's parents, but were able to do it in a way that wasn't possible for many Dalits of their generation. And while many people in the neighbourhood live in huts, she says, her family has a house. All the slum children used to come to our house. Our house was like a hangout place for many people. That's where we played and did all our uh, shenanigans. Like many places in India, Kakinada is segregated by caste, and Sajatha lives in the Dalit part of town. But as a young child, she doesn't know this. She just sees the people around her as friends and neighbours. She doesn't stop and think about what caste any of them might be. What she does notice is how many of them struggle to get by. I saw so much poverty surrounding us, and I saw so much suffering. Inside her small Dalit neighbourhood, Sajatha's family, with her college lecturer parents, they stand out for being pretty well off and benefit from that. But as she gets older, Sajatha starts to notice that whenever her family leaves the neighbourhood, people treat them differently. Whenever we go to grocery stores and stuff, like we couldn't hand the money to the cashier. We have to put it on the counter for him to pick up. One time, Sajatha says, she's downtown just window shopping. And the store owner comes out and shoes her away, like she's not even supposed to be looking at the things he's selling. Another time, Sajatha's father brings her with him to see one of his students. This student is a Brahmin, the highest caste. One day, a Brahmin student invited my father to her house to meet her parents. And they were talking nicely, and then the electricity went out. And so all of a sudden, the lights are gone, and they're stuck standing there in the dark. The student's mother finds a candle, but no matches. And since Sajatha's father has some in his pocket, he passes them to Sajatha to give to the woman. And I was handing it over to her, and she, like, moved her hand, like, much below my hand. And I thought, like, it'll drop on the floor. So I also lowered my hand. And yet again, she lowered her hand. It went on for some time like that until I realised that she's trying to avoid touching me. Even though Sajatha wasn't raised to be aware of her caste, she understands now, as an adult, that the Brahmin woman would have known for a number of reasons. Family surname, the clothes Sajatha and her father were wearing, the part of town they lived in. I think that my father noticed, but it was so shameful that uh, I didn't mention and she, he didn't mention. We never mentioned it at home. And as she notices more incidents like this happening, she begins to wonder why. What is it about me that's making people treat me like this? Is it because I'm dark? Is it because I'm thin? Is it because I'm Christian? Is it because I'm not rich? Is it because I'm awkward in my body language? Is it because I have pimples or, you know, all kinds of things used to occur to me. And one day my sister, she was young at that time, she came running home and she was crying and she told my mother, you know, she told me, Satyavati told me that we are untouchables. Uh, is that true? Please, Amma, tell me it's not true. Amma, tell me, please, Amma, tell me it's not true, she said. 
her parents always dodged these questions from their children. My mother just laughed, but even then she never told me that I'm an untouchable. The other thing is that even if Sajatha had started to have suspicions that her family is Dalit, she has no desire to confirm them. So it's a strange situation of knowing and not knowing at the same time. Her mother sometimes tells her stories about her uncle, a man named K.G. Sachemurthy, who went by the initials SM. SM was a famous Dalit poet who, after witnessing all the suffering forced on the poor, had decided to become a guerrilla fighter. The stories about him sound almost like fairy tales. He was like a Robin Hood and he lives in jungles and they had guns and they would threaten rich people and take all of their money and give to the poor people. And they inspire Sajatha. So that was my dream, to take up a, a rifle and, you know, threaten rich people into giving up their wealth and uh, distribute it to poor people on earth. And that's how to alleviate poverty. That was my idea. SM is also one of the leaders of a massive underground organization, the People's War Group. They're Maoists, communists, and Sajatha decides she wants to be one of them. And I even used to think, like, when I go to jungles, then the life would be hard. I will start living on bare floor right now and practice for the time when I have to go into jungles. As Sajatha gets older and becomes a teenager, she stumbles into a new group of friends. I was going somewhere on my bicycle and I saw these people in the street corner singing some songs about exploitation of peasants and stuff like that. The people she meets, they say that they reject caste, that all they care about is fighting together for the people at the bottom of society, the peasants, the working class. I stopped and listened to them and then I invited them to my house. She learns they're part of a Maoist group called the Radical Students' Union, which turns out to be the student arm of the People's War Group, the same group her uncle SM had started. From then on, I became a member of the Radical Students' Union. After high school, Sajatha goes to a local college in Kakinada. By this time, she's no longer totally unaware of her caste. Shortly after I went into college, my life became a horrible nightmare. There's this one girl in particular who belongs to the Kama caste, which is a higher caste specific to South India. One day, Sajatha walks into class. She's on time, finds a seat up front, and then this girl shows up. And the class started, and this girl came late. So she approaches Sajatha. And then, uh, without any regard to the lecture going on, she came up to me and said, get up. I said, what are you talking about? I'm here first. And she said, no, get up and go to the back. She had like no fear that people are watching or that the lecturer is listening to her. She's just like a, a mafia guy, you know. Like, go back, this, this is my seat, she said. I said, no, I'm going to sit her, you go to the back. 
And so there's like a standoff and everybody is awkward. Sujatha stands her ground, but then the lecturer, who's a Brahmin, the highest caste, steps in and... He said like, oh, you know, the class is interrupted. Uh, you go to the back, you sit in the back, he said. He's such a... I'm sorry you can edit it out. He's such a pussy, you know. He's telling me to go to the back. Well, which I did. As I said earlier, like, I knew I was an untouchables, but at the same time, I did not know. But then in 1985, something happened that made it impossible for Sujatha to avoid facing her caste any longer. That's after this break. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Sajatha's still a student studying, now at an engineering college in Warangal, a day's drive from Kakinada. It's uh, on a July day. She goes to class like usual. And uh, some of the boys... Boys who are in the Radical Students' Union with her. They came to my class and uh, asked the lecturer to allow me to go out. When I went out, they said that there's a massacre that happened in a village called uh, Karam Chedu. Karam Chedu is a farming village not far away. In Karam Chedu, there are Dalits and Karmas, the higher caste, like the girl from Hindi class. There, the Karmas own the farms, Dalits work for the Karmas on the farms, and the two groups are segregated. They don't even use the same drinking water. The day before, a Karma boy had been washing his buffalo in the middle of town, and some Dalit people saw that all of the muddy runoff from this boy's buffalo was going into the basin where Dalits got their drinking water. So they started arguing, and soon more people joined in. There was an altercation, a small fight broke out, and it ended or seemed to end with the karma boy running away. But then, by eight the next morning, hundreds of karma men had shown up and surrounded the part of town where Dalits live. They came on motorcycles and surrounded a colony of untouchables. As they ran for their lives, they hunted them and murdered them. And what's more, Sujatha says, the violence is carried out in ways that are intended to be especially painful and humiliating. That kind of violence was never heard of. The Karmas had chased down and tortured Dalits. They burned many of their homes to the ground. Women were raped. At least six people were killed and many more were seriously injured. 
According to a report on the massacre by the Regional Civil Liberties Committee, the attack was all over in an hour. What was also striking was that less than 50 years earlier, the Dalits and the Karmas had actually had a sort of alliance where they worked together to fight the feudal landlords they'd both laboured for. But when they won, all of the farmland was redistributed. It was given to the Karmas, which meant that they then became the landlords with power to wield. And suddenly, maintaining a caste alliance and fighting to overthrow the system stopped feeling so important. Caste is a very, very useful tool to divide working class and keep them from fighting together. And that's the role that caste plays in India. So you have to continue all these uh, drops of caste, like uh, untouchable and you can't sit next to me and we can't share water. All of that has to be in place to keep the workers down, to keep the workers divided. This violence, like, really shook us to the core. My family started talking about the massacre, and that's how it transformed us. Suddenly, all the harassments and moments of discrimination Sajatha had experienced seemed to take on a new meaning. We came out thinking that there's really no point in hiding that we're untouchables. And when we have to declare that we are untouchables, we might as well be bold about it. Before this, she says she had many identities. She was a student, a Kakinadan, a woman, a Maoist. But after the massacre all of those identities collapse into one. In my own heart, I became an untouchable. That's the only identity that remained. It's a turning point for many other Dalit people too. And that's when uh, the Dalit movement in Andhra started. Many had been advocating for Dalit rights before the massacre. But this moment was a turning point. It began the modern-day Dalit movement where people started to openly identify as Dalit. They write literature and poetry as Dalits and they start to organise politically. After the massacre, there's so much tension at Sajatha's school, she says you could almost feel it in the air. There was a sense of, like, some impending doom at that time. When I moved along in the campus, uh, I was a little cautious. I was trying to find signs of how people are uh, seeing us now. Are they seeing us in a different light or something? She remembers how one professor had been giving good grades to students that were in his caste and failing all of the students that were low caste. And so the radical students went to the principal and the principal was mealy-mouthed. He was like, well, I'll talk to him and yeah, but you know, I don't think that's the case. Then there's a strike. No classes, no one on campus, a complete shutdown. 
The strike lasts for weeks. With no classes to attend, Sajatha decides to go home to Kakanada to visit her family. After she's home, Sajatha and her sister are hanging out in front of their house. So we were standing and talking and then there was this guy passing in front of our house and looking at us like intently. And she thought that this, he was a creep or something. Then the police jeep also went by the next day and we didn't think anything of it. And then the next day, a huge van came, police van with many police in it. And that was scary. They said uh, I should go to the police station and they just wanted to ask some questions. Not, no big deal. Sajatha gets into the van and goes to the police station. Her mother insists on going with her. Uh, my mother was very anxious and everybody could see it. But I didn't ever think that I would be arrested for strike. I didn't ever think that I would be arrested for anything. I guess I was naive to think that police did that only because they have a reason to. Once they're at the station, no one comes to talk to them. No one will even say what's going on, but they also won't let Sajatha leave either. What happened next was the police from Warangal came and they said, uh, uh, we want to question you uh, about some things that happened in Warangal. The police say they want her to come with them all the way back to Warangal, where she goes to college. Throughout the ride, we were very tense and silent, staring out of the window, you know, not talking to each other. Once at the police precinct in Warangal, officers take Sajatha into a room where a deputy is sitting behind a desk. As she stands in front of him, he starts berating her. Why do you want to be in these radical politics? You want to be a terrorist or something, and uh, you're the only one we arrested because you're a Dalit? Why do you think we arrested just you, not them? And then he starts talking about her uncle, SM, the guerrilla fighter who had co-founded the People's War Group. Uh, your uncle was kicked out of the party because he was untouchable. Do you know that? He claims SM had been kicked out of his own organization because of his caste. But Sajatha doesn't believe him. Part of the whole point of the People's War Group is that they reject the idea of caste. And then uh, they didn't ask any questions. He just said, waved away, like, take her out. We want to see welts on her uh, shins and back, they said and use ropes and sticks. The police order her mother to leave the station and then drag Sajatha into a room. That beating I don't remember very well. When all of this was happening, I was like kind of numb, almost like somebody sedated you and you're they're shifting you from a stretcher to the bed to the operating room. I wasn't feeling anything. I shat in my clothes. That's the first time, I guess, like I was hearing some people saying that you're an untouchable and this is why we are doing this to you. After this, Sajatha gets shuffled from police station to police station. For a while, her mother has no idea where she is. 
My mother filed for what is called habeas corpus uh, to find out where I was. And then they took me to the court. There were no charges, but I don't know, some waiting and some other bullshit happened at the court, which I don't remember. I didn't know what I was being accused of, so it was a guessing game. The severity of uh, the torture was, you know, because I was Dalit and also it's the same thing happened to other Dalit male students because they were Dalits. And I mean, they couldn't stand Dalits could be in a position to lead uh, strikes and be assertive. And yeah, that was a big thing. Like, oh, these people look at them like, you know, they're running the campus and uh, who do they think they are? And, you know, that sort of thing. Sajatha's in the prison for a couple of months, and then one day, she's suddenly released. Until the arrest, my goal was to become a guerrilla and take up a rifle and be part of the guerrilla army and stuff like that. That was my goal. Like, after uh, graduating, I was going to go into uh, jungles, but the arrest happened, and it made me, like, you know, not so enthusiastic anymore. I didn't want to put my parents through the, the suffering that they went through. And secondly, at the, uh, during the arrest, I saw how the party didn't care for, you know, arrested students and arrested Dalits. While Sajatha was being detained, no one from the Maoist party, the People's War Group, ever show up to help her or any of the other radical students arrested after the strike. It kind of made us feel that, what is this party? They don't care for us, you know. At that point, she just wants to get as far away as possible from the arrest, the Radical Students' Union, her caste, all of it. I always thought that the acceptance of me by other people, the chances uh, were directly proportional to my distance from home. And so the farthest from home is New York. And so, in 1992, Sajatha moves to New York City. She's 29, and she says it's unlike any place she'd been before. Somebody showed me supermarket and said, this is where you can get food. And uh, I bought, like, angel cake for $5, and I ate it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. <laughs> Maybe I don't uh, admit it to myself, but a couple of times in... Uh, uh, America had this paranoid sensation that the police were following me, you know. My friends say that uh, I repressed the memory. Uh, he's a psychiatrist. Uh, that I'm, I'm still not, uh, have not come to terms with it. It sounds so cliche. I tend to not agree with him. But... Maybe that it in itself means something, but I don't know. What my feeling is that uh, I wasn't in, influenced by that, but I'm not so keen as I was when I was 18 to be arrested and tortured and all of that stuff. Her first job in New York is doing IT in an office. But as she's commuting to work, she becomes fascinated by the city's subway system. You know, like how people, they like uh, landscapes with greenery and 
waterfalls. And for me, it's the industries and the machinery, you know. And she also starts to notice who's driving the trains. I noticed black women being train operators and conductors. And for me, it's a very male job. Uh, I was so impressed with the women being so confident driving this train that carried so many people. And, you know, they're in charge of this big behemoth of metal dragon. And I thought like, okay, if an exam comes up, I should take it. She eventually takes the test and gets the job, becoming the first Indian woman to work as a subway conductor in New York City. It's like, you know, how children are, uh, small children, when the garbage trucks come and they get all excited and they think garbage truck drivers are the, the most awesome people in the world. It's, uh, it, it is actually true. It is true that what they do is very important and, and we should be in awe of them. Today, Sajatha still lives in New York, where she's worked as a train conductor for the last decade. But a few years ago, she also wrote a book about her uncle and her family. She went to India to interview SM with a stack of notebooks and a tape recorder. She'd booked adjacent rooms for both of them in a hotel. My uncle was in a very frail state of health as he was when he was born. And yet he was like so strong. Every morning for three weeks, she'd get up and go next door where SM was waiting, ready to start the day's interview. Everything he said about his own life were actually connected to the life of India. They're connected. He never saw personal problems as poverty and caste discrimination as personal things, but as social things. He also tells her how, in the end, he'd split with his own party. Caste conflicts had surfaced even in the People's War Group. And it actually happened right around the time of the Karam Chedu massacre. The deputy inspector in Warangal had been telling Sajatha the truth about her uncle. He was always talking about class and there's no caste. We don't fight for caste. Only class liberation will liberate caste oppression. I think that he was very sad and he was very tragic when he died because... He felt like he was leaving the world without leaving his mark. When Sajatha returned to New York, she finished writing her memoir, which she called Ants Among Elephants. Last year, when New York was one of the first cities in the US to be hit by the pandemic, COVID disproportionately affected Sajatha and her colleagues. Being underground all day in enclosed spaces, infection rates for MTA workers were even higher than for first responders. MTA workers, uh, uh, we gave in so much. Like we worked without equipment, PPE. We worked through the pandemic and we worked uh, no hazard pay, nothing. The MTA say that they were following early CDC guidelines to not wear or distribute masks. Then in late March 2020, they changed the policy to distribute PPE to workers. But Sajatha says for a while she was hearing about more co-workers dying every single day. 
Then, Sajatha got COVID herself. We exposed ourselves to all of this stuff, and there's not a stir in, our, in us that this is not right. Once she'd recovered from the worst of the illness, she wrote about it in an op-ed for the New York Times. The conditions created by the pandemic drive home the fact that we essential workers, workers in general, are the ones who keep the social order from sinking into chaos. Yet, we are treated with the utmost disrespect, as though we are expendable. My co-workers say bitterly, we're not essential, we are sacrificial. In the op-ed, Sajatha goes on to describe sanitation workers in Pittsburgh walking out to demand PPE and GE workers calling on the company to make ventilators. And then she calls on her fellow workers to band together and organize. Hopefully, this experience will make us see clearly the crucial role we play in keeping society running so that we can stand up for ourselves, for our interests, for our lives. Next time on Strongman. Who do we call? Who do we call if the same police who are supposed to protect us are the same people who are killing us? Strongman is a production of Vice News. It's hosted by me, Hint Hassan. Stephanie Kariuki is our senior producer. Our producers are Peter Langstanton and Pulavi Kotamasu. Our associate producer is Sam Egan. Sound design and original score by Pran Bandi. Annie Aviles is our executive producer. Kate Osborne is the VP of Vice Audio. Special thanks to Michelle Harris for fact-checking. Also thanks to Thenmazi Sundarajan, Dr. Suresh Yangde and Jetforce Studios, Sonia Luthria, and Somnath Wagamare. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.